Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Robin Lyons, ISACA's IT Audit Professional Practices Principal. And today we're going to discuss um, the topic of seven things to know before automating IT general control audits. Uh, so joining us today from member Bide Best Advisory Services are Franz Gildenheis and Gustav Silva. Welcome to you both. Hi, Robin. Hi, Robin. Thank you. So before we get started, uh, would you kindly do uh, self-introductions for our listeners? Oh, so I'm Franz Galdnes. Um I started out doing my chartered accountancy articles at KPMG. Uh, while doing my articles, I realized that I wanted to go into IT. So after that, after I completed my external audit articles, I joined our IT advisory practice, um, where I got sort of inter an introduction and exposure to ITGCs, data analytics, and more of the IT side of auditing. Um, after that, I joined Gustav at Bitvest um, in 2014, and that's where we started our journey around the, the automation um, of some of the audit procedures that we perform in terms of ITGCs at the companies within Bitvest. Thanks. Um, my name is Gustav Silva. I'm originally from PwC, but have been with Bitvest now for 12, over 12 years. Um, one of the founding members of the Bitvest Alice program. Um, online platform to do our audits and help us automate. And it's really been a, a journey and a focus for a very long time today to see how we can take uh, data from different places and just uh, automate the whole process and learn in the process of what true continuous audit is. And that really is my professional life at this stage. Fantastic. Thank you both for that. Before we jump into the questions and the discussion, um, since the article is scenario based, I wondered if you could possibly. Uh, provide some context for our listeners by sharing a little bit about the scenario um, that the article uses to discuss these seven things to know. I'm going to hand over to the cell phone. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, so when, when we started this journey, we were a small audit team. We were five members in the, in the IT internal audit team that needed to cover the Bitface group. Now, to give you a bit of context around the Bitface group, there's about 360 companies in the group, um, all of them decentralized, no, no sort of systems or policies or anything driven down centrally um, to any of these companies. So for us as a team of five IT internal auditors, we basically had 360 firms or customers that we needed to service. Now, originally we started out doing this manually, collecting data, um, doing the testing and then doing the reporting, but it's, you kind of repeat everything. So it's the same data you collect, same testing you do and the same reporting you do, but for different environments. That's when we, we realized that I, I think originally it took us, took us two and a half years to, to actually cover the entire landscape and in an environment that's, that's technology based and ever changing. If you, only get to a company every two and a half years. There's no way that you, you're um, sort of you're you're, you're you're doing your professional duty in terms of de-risking the the company for technology. So that's when we conceptualized the idea of Alice, which is a automated testing platform, um, and we started to automate what we did. We actually started very small originally in one of the companies with sort of SQL scripts and access databases and automated what we did for that specific company. But when we tried to 
Very but good. to other companies and roll it out and automate passion, we struggle. So they can to create the platform to make it secure, scalable, and, and easy to actually deploy across all of the 360 companies. So where we went from two and a half years to reach each one of the companies, now we collect data on a scheduled basis, sometimes daily for each one of these companies and perform the testing um, as a continuous monitoring platform. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I'd like to ask um, for our listeners who may be at, I guess, any point along this automation journey, what are some of the benefits? And you've touched on a couple of those. Um, efficiency, because manual um, tasks can be automated. Um, the possibility, possibility of being able to leverage automation for continuous monitoring. But I want to ask, uh, what are some of the, the high-level benefits that you see of, of automation of ITGCs? I'll go first. Um, look, the biggest thing for me is time. You, you win so much time back once you start getting automation done because it's something you don't have to go back on. You So, so for us, our biggest problem we had is we continuously work on the same type of stuff. Low-level companies get ignored completely because um, when it comes to the bigger financials, they have no material impact if they disappear off the earth. So those companies you never get to because you're only focusing on the large ones and it's a repeat cycle of the same poor audits. Now, with the automation, it meant that we had to implement it once and that runs continuously. And the only thing we have to do is follow up on exceptions. And uh, because uh, she, Alice, repeats that cycle the whole time, it's also relatively real time. So she actually engages with the management. Management sorts out what they need to do and we only have to mark up if there's a problem at the end. So, so that means that we can do two things. One, we can move away from only focusing on the same order at the same time of the whole time, and then start working on other stuff we wanted to add value, which we couldn't do in the past. We can introduce more services because as you automate one service next year, you don't have to redo that. You actually use that same time to bring the next service to the company. And then my favorite part was just to get to all our small companies. So there have a lot of companies we had to introduce ourselves and explain what the IT auditor does. Even though we're part of a huge listed entity, they've never seen an IT auditor. So it was it was exciting to be able to, to work with them. And that all part of this journey of automation actually enables so much more around the fringes. And I don't think a lot of people focus on that, but that's been the most exciting thing and the biggest benefit to us. And to add to this stuff, I also think, um, and this was sort of a, added benefit that that I don't think we initially thought would come through the platform. That was a general a general perspective of a better better governance mindset of management. Because we're continuous, continuously monitoring the environments, they are more acutely aware of what's being raised as exceptions. And they need to implement their controls and their processes in a better fashion to make sure that it doesn't continuously get raised. So in that sense, that, that governance mindset has, has been extremely beneficial to the group. Yeah, it actually shifts their focus from being almost more proactive now because they know it's coming. So instead of having to wait for us to raise a finding and then just go clean that up, we now started putting processes in place to proactively prevent the findings from happening in the first place. And that's, that's also been pretty exciting to see the maturity in the companies, which is another added benefit. Great, fantastic. Uh, I think that's very useful information for, for other people um, as they look at automation. I want to talk a little bit about 
established control tests for structured data. Um, and I'm not going to name any names, but I do know that there are some, some companies I've heard that are not that far along in their data management process. And by that, I mean they have data management programs where they're still identifying what data they have, uh, where the data is located, and how the data actually flows through their systems. So in that sort of an environment, um, what recommendations do you have for auditors who, who do want to uh, look at structured data first, but they're in an environment where it, it may be not be as mature? Um, so what recommendations or thoughts do you have to share with them? Oh, it's going to sound a bit cliche, but just start. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's truly a thing. And I think for us on podcast today, if you do any YouTube courses, they also tell you, just start. But it is, it's a thing, just start. So if, if, if the guys get stuck because we need to go and identify all the data sources and all the flows, understand where everything is going, and quite frankly, when you start your first control automation, it's not going to hit everything and all the data flows and all the data pieces. So if you have something that is repeatable, that you know the data is really structured somewhere, start with that piece. Go and just start automating there. Then over time, you can map out your processes and gradually grow the bigger picture. But honestly, just find something that is structured that you can work with. And and on the on the data flow part, especially if you're mature, you probably find there's a lot of unstructured data lying around, stuff in forms, scans, um, these pieces of paper. Um, we, we, when we started, we started with that process of, oh, we have to get all this paperwork, find an email model, train it, get it done. And honestly, that was that was a mistake. It was a big learning curve to make, to, to go through. So, because that time you take to train that model, to refine that stuff, and to go and get it into structured data, we could have used half that time to just introduce forms on a SharePoint environment and taken away the paperwork completely, which would have been a benefit for the company as well as for us. So honestly, I, I would genuinely just start. Pick something that is there, that's small, show proof of value that actually this makes sense, that buys you the legroom to move into other areas, and then you can start mapping out. And don't go down this exercise of mapping for months and months and actually not producing any automation. Make a point of growing that as a framework, but actually focusing on actually producing some value immediately. If you do that, you know, all those pieces will start falling into place over time. But uh, I've seen, sure, you know, over-analysis at the end of the day leads to people not doing anything. So I would, I would honestly just start, just pick something, get going, and then start mapping out. I guess I couldn't have said it any better. Uh, just start. Firstly, I would, for the auditors, start with the known data sources. Obviously, they've collected data already for the audit procedures they do. So start with those, those data points that you already know exist. You don't have to have the full process flow or the full data flow. The other thing is where we have had companies where they were reluctant to start the process. But once they, they got into the automation, they wanted to automate everything, which is also a problem. We actually need to do sort of an automatability assessment for them, where we look at the data source, the data owner, the system owner, the control owner, and, and how they know the processes around that and kind of get to a prioritized list of controls to automate so that you can, you can chunk it up and you can have a small portion that you actually do, you automate, and you put it into into the environment so that your stakeholders can see sort of 
the real value once you once you start automating and it's not it's not a project that runs over months you do it in, in a month or two and already have some values being introduced to company that's excellent guidance and i i know from from experience and and also from talking to a lot of other people and i think you you actually mentioned it gustav um they actually call it um analysis paralysis where people get yeah. into the analytical they get into a an analytical phase and they kind of stay there and they don't do what you just said which is to just start and i, I think that that's great that's great practical advice um for people um and actually it's sort of a nice segue into into our next topic which wanted to talk about um, the article talks about um, demonstrating quick wins through scalable control tests. And so I kind of wanted to ask you if you can talk a little bit more about scalable control tests um, and perhaps uh, provide an example of that. And then also talk about how they can be used uh, to grow uh, the audit program. When you start out on this journey of automatic controls, and especially for us where we had 260 companies, that we, you can't create a bespoke control test for each one of those companies. The control might be a bit different for each one of them. And that's why we say scalable control tests. Identify controls that are the same across all of those, those companies. It's easy to roll out um, and you deal with your variation um, in terms of the data that you collect. So mapping it to a standard data schema, but then you perform your control test on that standard data schema, which makes it a lot easier to roll out to 360 companies and run the same same control test across a diverse environment. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much for that. So one of the um, things to know listed in the article talked about uh, performing research on data collecting agents and other technologies. Um, and this is something that that looking through the rearview mirror, the small audit shop that's uh, that's referenced in the article, wish that they had done. So can you provide some guidance, some tips to the listeners on? Um, in conducting that type of research, what what are things that are necessary to have versus those things that might be just nice to have? When you start with this journey, um, be careful when you look online for these integration partners. There's they have beautiful marketing websites and icons for every system you can think of that we can integrate to, and it just looks like the silver bullet is there. But in reality, depending on what you need to connect, especially a MySpace, which focuses on IT audit, those, those systems are basically marketing, cloud, and API, and mature-based um, integrations. But as soon as you start going into smaller firms, um, a lot of the IT systems today that are on this you know, API, there's a lot points in the stage. And if, if you've gone into some tech base that only focuses on these modern technologies, you've got a bit of a problem. And we saw that after a while, the best solution we actually came up with was to find somebody who can, yes, integrate to some key names, but actually is more tech driven. So they understand that they might have to integrate to an API, to a SQL server, to a web form, to a type of technology, and then there was somebody there that could guide you through it that you can almost outsource initially to until you can actually learn how to use it yourself. And um, one of the big things we saw uh, some of the integration partners were extremely um, code-based, but for people coming out of our field, that's not ideal. If you're going to have to set up some integration and importantly maintain it later, you actually would like to have a visual interface, one that has a drag and drop flow that you can actually open up and see what's inside of it and understand it because it's 
You don't have to understand the fine detail coding that sits behind it. That makes it sustainable. That means that you can bring in the, the partner if you need to, to help you with a new integration or something that's very complex. But afterwards, if you want to make small nuances or you want to copy that flow and use it for somebody else and just reconfigure it, you can do it. So try and find, try and find that type of tech that makes sense to you. Um, I also find we saw this a lot in the States. There are a lot of the audit firms and even the smaller audit, audit houses now have at least one strong IT techie guy with them that actually helps with the technical integrations. That is pretty useful. In our case, we are those people. So that's that's how we operate internally. So if you can get that in mind, that'll help a lot. And then the, the other part of integration, just to add, it's not really about always the partner. It's sometimes just being clever how you integrate. Um, again, the France mentioned earlier, if you really know how to get certain information, start with those points because that means that the, the script exists or somebody has written and stored a procedure somewhere. So if your tech can just connect to that, you're integrated. If um, there is no API or they don't want it to go into production, that shouldn't stop your integration. Ask them, are you willing to give me a view that I can have read-only access to? Then actually the IT house end up creating the view for you. You connect to that and, and obviously you have to do audit assurance over the view and the change control, but otherwise the integration is flowing. So if you, especially if you're small, try and be clever about identifying your sources, getting technology that will assist you holistically and not only for specific technologies. And I guess don't be scared to use more than one tech. If, if you find that it works very well for one specific one because it's a very niche system and you have a niche partner that will help you with that specific system and use them and then use a generalized uh, partner for everything else. So that, that's at least what I would suggest if you get going. And very, very good suggestions. And I, I like that you mentioned um, an audit team that may have a techie or two uh, on staff uh, because that, that rolls right into the next question I'd like to, to ask. And, and that re that resounds around if an audit team does not have that techie person um, and they do have to reach out to a third party specialist. So, and I know that happens not just with small audit shops, but sometimes larger shops as too, depending on, on what the technology is. So if a, an audit shop does have to reach out to a third party specialist, are there any recommendations or practical tips you can share so that that audit team can actually leverage that collaboration during that specific engagement so that they can do some professional development to, to have a little bit more knowledge, a better base for that technology than, than when the engagement started, acknowledging that they're not gonna become professional uh, 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 specialists in that technology overnight, but, but just to, to, uh, to do some self-improvement. I think I'll, I'll handle the IT side of France and we want to chat about the business side, but so there's two places for me sort of we need to talk about. The one is just pro providing your service or integration. And it truly is a big topic once you go down the street. So again, if you find the right partner, um, like the ones we have, they have certification courses for you. So you can learn the basics, understand most of it, and then you have a help desk that you can tap into. So if the organization is big enough to help you with that, that's great. Get certified. Doesn't mean you have to be a specialist, but at least you can maintain and you can do basic things. And then they will they will tap in out there. But be involved with the process. Make sure that you've been part of what are you connecting to and why. You have to anyway, because if you're going to give assurance, you need to know where the data is coming from and what transformations are happening before it hits your platform for your for your control test. 
So, so be part of that process. But now the other side, where the specialists came in, from my side especially, you know, we find more and more security moving into our space. So now, now we have to give assurance over the processes. Are we finding the right um, issues? Are they being maintained? Is it going through SOC, et cetera? That becomes very specialist. So what's been nice with us, the different partners we've had, we've tried to pick partners that, one, when you do have a problem, or you have something you've never seen before, or something very technical that you don't understand, you can actually send it to support line, and somebody with the right level of knowledge will respond. So that way, they will respond, you will learn what is going on, what this means, you can apply it back to your customers, or to your, to your audit firm. And then also, um, when it really gets very complex, we don't have time to do all the research the whole time. You have companies that focus on security only, that focus on patches only. So again, if you have those guys in your pocket and you've leveraged those services, let them handle the really, really hardcore technical stuff, keeping up to date, making sure we're aligned, and then just plug into any communications. As soon as you take yourself out of the equation and you hand it over to them completely and you're not part, then you don't learn. If you're willing to ask the questions and actually willing to just absorb, you'll find that you learn quite a lot without even having to apply your mind. So stay involved the whole time and then that way you'll learn automatically and make sure the partner is proficient enough to be able to answer the questions that come from your clients. Yeah, and I, and I think for, for us, it was also doing a bit of the research up front when you actually select a partner or a techni uh, technology platform or uh, someone that you're going to use, a specialist that you're going to use. When you go out in the market and you're searching for a specific specialist, you need to know at least a bit about the field to disseminate between the various specialists out there, which one can service you the best, which one um, can assist you the best, and actually getting to the information you need. You don't need to know everything, but you need to know a bit to, to choose between them. For us, when we started going down this route of using quite a lot of specialists, we actually also, just this is more from the business side, but, but we introduced a, quite a robust vendor selection process where it almost forces you to do a bit of the research up front to see if this, this is an established specialist, how can they help you? And through that work that you do, you tend to, to learn a bit about that that field already. But then when you start working with those specialists, you've got the results and you query the results with your stakeholders and then and your, your customers. You also then get specific questions that you might need to do a bit of research on, might need to speak to the specialist and actually just think, is this a reasonable answer that I'm going to take back to the customer where they say they've identified a false positive? But you need to make sure that you're happy with the assurance you provide. So I think through that process, actually learning and working with a specialist, you do transfer or do at least get a bit of the bit of the knowledge. You won't get the in-depth knowledge like the specialist has working with that every day. But you, you tend to then at least have a bit of the, the knowledge and, and can start to you know, hold your own in the conversations that you need to have. Fantastic. Thank you both for that. Um, one of the uh, items mentioned in the article as far as uh, um, something to consider during automation was to actually shift from looking at risk from a risk per control basis, but to actually adopt a risk framework. And one of the benefits that was mentioned of using a risk framework is that uh, that would support KPIs. 
uh, key performance indicators. So can you talk a little bit about um, advantages of, of using KPIs, not just for the, the audit team itself, but also for the organization? KPIs drive maturity. Um, it's, it's a bit of a stick approach, but I, I really hope people don't see it that way. But if you don't, if you don't do it right and get to change management right, um, it comes across that way. So I, I want to want to make sure we don't don't think of us as a stick, but because it drives the wrong culture. But we've we've gone through that process of introducing introducing KPIs, um, and it, it truly it, it affects uh, bonuses. I mean, it, it's it's that serious uh, to us. Um, KPIs. We originally started with a very basic approach. We just said, hey, it's a finding or it's not. And we worked out an average and this is your, your risk or this is your percentage. Um, over time, as, as the company matured and ugh, different people started getting involved and, and we really understood what a KPI is about and the, that you actually want to have a positive, proactive approach to, to outcomes, uh, it, it matured over time to actually become quite a complex little equation. You look at you know, SLA times to, to need certain uh, findings to address them. SLAs um, differ per type of control that you have to look at. So we had to introduce that type of mechanism. We um, have to review what is being accepted. Because remember, in our processes for continuous audit and, and automating this process, Alice speaks directly to the, to the manager. We don't even get involved. So whatever he tells her, she either believes or doesn't. So we, we had to start monitoring that type of information. Data flow is critical in, in driving your accuracy of your results. So you have to introduce that into your KPIs to make sure that that's all up to date. It's it's a pretty complex little world to get fair. But once you have KPI in and you've engaged with both the person being audited as well as what the audit needs are, we find that both feel there's a fair reflection on what the scoring is and the effective KPI. And then suddenly you start seeing positive movement forward because the KPIs, obviously I want to show that I'm good at what I'm doing and I want to be as professional as possible to be measured by KPI. So I want the highest possible score. And then you, then I, I like gamification a little bit. So we've, we show the guys each other scores. It's, it's a part of our culture. So then we start seeing the different IT houses competing. Who's got the, the best KPI and the lowest risk score? And they actually mock each other and take each other out if the scores are wrong. But it's it's driven our culture of being competitive, but in a positive direction, making sure that we have the right processes to keep it as low as possible, the risk, giving us the best KPIs possible. But it is, it is something that I just want to say again, you know, if you come in as a pure stick, it's, it's a problem. If you go consultatively and explain, this is how we think the KPI should be calculated. What are the factors as the person being audited that you would like us to consider? Then, then it smooths that, that road a little bit. And then we, we get to a point where we can prove that we've taken all their considerations out and our considerations into a single equation or methodology. And that's, that's really the starting point because otherwise um, the KPI can actually become a hindrance. But in our case, it's been positive now. We've seen the movement, we've de-risked the group. We, every time we introduce new modules or products or controls that need to be audited, we actually consult with them beforehand. So how are we going to measure this? How is it going to affect the KPI? 
is this something we should know about and that buys that buy-in and then and then we move forward so kpi is definitely positive just make sure it's consultative and it's fair it's fair from our side from a risk perspective we're meeting our job if it's fair from their side that we've considered the nuances of operations and all the controls around it both parties are happy and you really will have a good outcome yeah i think just to add to Gustav, the, the, the introduction of the KPIs almost drove progression um, and all of the parties involved wanting to be better. So from a company perspective, you've got the KPIs and they, they've got the gamification and they want to be better than the other companies. But when you introduce a KPI that affect their bonus at the end of the year, you better make sure that you're doing your job properly as well. So it's it's driven sort of our team to make sure that we're doing better as well as gustav said we've got a lot more elements that we include into the kpi looking at coverage and the risk in the environment and making sure that we we account for all of those those elements that we need to take into um into consideration when when we actually calculate that kpi so i think all around it might be a step but for us it's consultative and it's definitely driven excellence that, that is great information. I, I like the, the fact that it seemed to pull together so that everyone wanted to to do a better job. And as you mentioned, Franz, to excel. And, and actually, as far as the gamification, uh, I think people would rather play a game than get a report card. So uh, it, like you mentioned, if, if KPIs are starting to, to be viewed as in those perspectives rather than, you know, here's this benchmark and, you know, thump on the head if you didn't do as well as expected. Um, I think that's, that's a great approach to take it at looking at KPIs. So, so thank you for sharing that, that information. Um, I want to talk a little bit about um, in industry, we talk frequently about people, process, and technology. Um, so one of the things mentioned in the article is that people, and in particular stakeholders, uh, should be brought into the automation journey early. And so I wanted to get your, your perspectives and your thoughts on as auditors try to socialize automation in what they're doing, um, are there any challenges or, or any sort of, you know, what we call pushback um, from stakeholders and, and what might be the basis of that and how can auditors overcome it? Well, I'll, I'll go first. I think um, for us, when we started out the, the journey of automation, we did it from an internal audit perspective and we wanted to push it down to the stakeholders. Um, but when you start introducing technology and digitalization, automation of procedures, there's a perception that your, your technology and your results will be 100% accurate, um, which is not always the case. But when you start with that and you only come from an internal order perspective, your stakeholders kind of challenge you on everything, um, question everything, block everything. They, they become a hindrance to the whole process. Where, where we went through the journey and, and sort of, because we did a phased approach across the different companies, we started to learn and, and started to include your stakeholders, management themselves, upfront because then they buy in they they know the technology um, that is automatically tested um, in certain cases now we've introduced uat testing um, almost like a development life cycle where we where we implement the automated audit control we sit with management we go through what the control automatically tests uh, we go through the results they perform uat testing and we get their buy-in and they understand the process about this and through that consultative process you bring them into the fray instead of them wanting to block it immediately because now you're showing all of the wrong things in the environment. That comes in and they, they happy and say, hey, we can remediate this. Another thing that, that 
we've realized in this journey is, as I said, we've introduced it as an internal audit tool initially, but eventually with this, with this consultative, um, process, the platform almost became a management control. They log on every day. They look at the exceptions. They go and remediate. And we then evolve further, like we stuff explained with the KPIs and all of that, that, that we almost measure the SLA. So looking at their remediation time. When you raise exceptions on a near real time basis, management doesn't appreciate you raising findings when they see the findings at the same time that you'll see the findings. And so you need to provide them with that time to actually go and remediate. So you've introduced that. They use the platform almost as a management control. And then you've got this remediation time SLA sitting on top of that where internal audit only follows up and, and kind of raises exceptions and findings when they haven't met their SLA. So I think that's, that's also through this consultative process, including them from the start, um, that we've that we've got their buying. I think that you've given us a lot of information today, a lot of practical tips and perspectives that can help um, audit shops on their journey to automation. Um, but unfortunately, that's all the time that we have for today. So I do want to again thank you, um, Franz Geldenheis and um, Gustav Silvo, um, member at Bidvest Advisory Services. A big thank you for them for joining us today. Uh, also, listeners, if you have not had a chance to read their full article, which is entitled Seven Things to Know Before Automating IT General Control Audits, uh, that link to the article is in the description box, and you can check that out there. Um, so thank you all very much. Uh, this is Robin Lyons, IT Audit Professional Practices Principal at ISACA. Uh, thank you for joining us, and see you next time. <music>